Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And it is just a couple of days before Christmas. We cannot believe it. Are you enjoying your holidays, Bridget? I am. You know, it's been kind of busy. We actually, well, I say went ice skating yesterday. I sat on a bench. I got on the ice for like <laughs> five seconds. I'm, I'm not kidding. Hung on to the rail and said, you know, I paid a lot of money for these dental implants and I don't want to have to get them again. So what See, about, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. been great. It's been great. I've been, yesterday I baked, every year where I bake cookies with my daughters. So I am blessed to get to do that for another year because you never know where they're going to land every year. That's the thing about adult children. You just never right. know. And wrapping presents and just enjoying the holiday. Bridget and I have been working on our top 10 most downloaded episodes for 2023. And we're going to start those on December 22nd. And each day you're going to see on our social media, which went from 10 to 1. And one of the episodes that I really thought would land on the top 10 was our interview with Dr. Nanette Santoro. So Bridget and I said, you know what, let's just add this for this week since it is the holiday week and a lot of people are busy wrapping presents and want to listen to something. Dr. Nanette Santoro is a professor at the University of Colorado specializing in their obstetrics department. She also is on the board for Estellis, which is the pharmaceutical company that brought us Vioza. So Vioza is the first FDA-approved non-hormonal treatment for hot flashes, and it's for moderate to severe hot flashes. Dr. Nanette Santoro was on the board as it was being FDA approved, and we got to talk to her right before the approval in May. It was such an incredible conversation. Right. We yeah. were thrilled to be able to talk to her. She had so much information, and since then, Bioza has been approved by the FDA. It has helped thousands of women who cannot take either can't take hormones or for whatever reason don't want to take hormones, right. but it is a non-hormonal FDA-approved medication for hot flashes. And we thought that this should really be on the list. Yes. So we're adding it, guys. You're going to hear a replay of Dr. Nanette Santoro's episode. I learned so much from her, Bridget. I did. And, you know, in the interview, it wasn't called Veoza yet. It was called Fezzalonitan. And now it is called Veoza. So Colleen and I were so excited because during the time there was, um, the Super Bowl was starting to add commercials yes. about talking about finally talking about menopause and hot flashes and, and vasomotor symptoms. And it really is something. And now here we are in December and we have um, acts being introduced in Congress, bipartisan acts being introduced in Congress by groups of women that are really being advocates. We say that that the topic of menopause is exploding. We're thrilled that it is because Colleen always has said, we want our daughters and women behind us to take for granted that there are options out there for them, that they don't have to suffer in silence anymore. And just having Vioza out there is another option. With that, we're going to play our episode with our interview with Dr. Nanette Santora. Welcome back, guys. We are talking to Dr. Nanette Santoro. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. 
we appreciate your time. We know you're very busy. And Bridget and I started to do some research on these non-hormonal medications that are in phase three trials with the FDA. And your name kept coming up. And I was like, oh my gosh, we need to talk to her about this. Before we get started on talking about kind of these change-making medications that are going to be available hopefully soon for women, I wanted to talk to you about the article that came out recently in the New York Times called Women Have Been Misled about menopause. And you were quoted in it. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that you kind of were on the front line when the report came out from the Women's Health Initiative in 2002 about kind of the negative information and risks. And I wanted to find out from you, what was it like being a physician at that time with patients who were taking hormonal therapy? Well, I think think since that time, we've seen a lot of sort of wacky information campaigns where stuff that seems neutral immediately goes south and becomes this polarizing uh, situation. And, And that was really one of the very first times I had experienced that because I personally wasn't prescribing hormone therapy for the sole purpose of preventing heart disease. I think that some clinicians may have been doing that. And I think with that came this profound sense of, oh my goodness, that wasn't a good idea. Some people went into regret mode. Other people went into hostile denial mode. No, that can't be true. The study was wrong. And people got still stuck in prevention world and and were unable to just take themselves out of that and go to, people are having hot flashes. We need to treat them. Now we have a very good assessment of what risks may accrue to them with hormone therapy, nothing was earth shattering except the fact that it wasn't protective. Most of us expected it to be protective, but it it wasn't. So move on, you know, nothing to look at here. People move on, give hormones when they're indicated and don't give them when they're not. So, you know, the communication of risk, and I really thought that the reporter on this article said it well. I mean, it was just a mess. Um, And no one could have predicted, I think at the time, how it was going to go so badly. Uh, Many doctors had patients calling in an absolute flop sweat panic. You know, oh my goodness, you know, I'm taking poison. And and I mean, just none of that's true. And now that we have 18-year follow-up on the women who took these hormones, for the most part, overall, there's just no difference in long-term health outcomes. There are nuances to that data, but it again confirms that this is pretty low-risk stuff. Once you accept the fact that nothing, there's no free lunch and everything has some risk attached to it. So I, you kind of answered part of my question. What were your thoughts on that article? Because Bridget and I found it incredibly comprehensive as far as telling the history of hormone therapy, how the media has misled a lot of women into absolute panic and fear over taking medication that is hormone therapy. What were your thoughts on the article? I don't know that there's any one person that or party that should be blamed. I think there were just a lot of things that were communication missteps that could we have done it better? Yes. Um, many clinicians were angry you know, that they weren't told about it beforehand, but yet you're running the study. How can you tell them beforehand without telling the women who are doing it? So I thought that that was captured pretty well by Susan Dominus in the article, some of that that chaos. And I think that some of the 
ways that everything got interpreted really have left us in a, in a tough position. Many other treatments have come out that are bogus and that purport to be better. They're uncontrolled studies. And, you know, we still have good old hormones that I have many patients that come in and just say, I'm, oh, I'm not going to take those. Yes. Yeah. And I find physicians to this day, or not, not every, but many, and some that have happened to me personally, when I go and ask about this, and I remember the first time I asked about this, I was 47 years old, and I was having hot flashes unbelievably just at night, at least 15 times a day, you know, sometimes three times an hour, hot flashes. I asked about it, and it just wasn't even considered for me. She thought I was too young. She did the uh, F, the for, uh, follicle stimulating hormone blood test with that and said, "Oh yeah, okay, it looks like you are." I was probably perimenopausal because I wasn't twelve months out, but was denied. Do you, you know, I'm finding this to be a situation. I did find another physician that was very open to discussing this with me, and I wanted. Uh, a hormone replacement. Some people don't want it. Do you find that it's really hard to get the word out to different physicians that maybe this is not as risky as it had initially seemed? I think that that was also addressed in the Times article. I think there's a training gap that we've just had this turning away from hormone therapy so that the level of comfort with it is reduced. So a lot of people just don't get enough training um, in OBGYN they get maybe six weeks of training in reproductive hormones, and that includes menopause. Uh, there's some training modules that they can take. So you have to go out of your way to do it. You know, for example, my colleagues in family medicine, we have many here at the University of Colorado who I inadvertently insulted with my quote in the article, which I didn't mean to do. But uh, I, what I really meant to say is most family medicine doctors have 15 minutes to spend with a patient. And if you're going to have a lengthy discussion about hormone therapy, you really need a lot of extra skill training experience to be able to have that conversation, and you probably need to make another visit. I have a reproductive endocrine practice where I do a lot of what we call evaluation and management for uh, menopausal patients, and those are not very well-paying visits. So there's a, a time disincentive and there's a financial disincentive, and you know, doctors, some, many doctors choose not to go there. Many fearless doctors still will do it. And there are um, the North American Menopause Society, for example, has certified practitioners. These are people, they're physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, midwives, PAs who have taken a specific interest in menopause and have gone to the trouble to learn it, to go through the guide for learning. And those are places where women can find information that may help direct them to doctors who will be more sympathetic. But, you know, you're not the only person that I've heard say that I've gone to someone and they would just, we would not just, let's not go there. Currently, there are two non-hormonal medications that appear to be in phase three trials, if I'm correct, that can help women with hot flashes. And that can be a change maker. Your current research in menopause is involved with one of them. I thought the best way for our listeners to understand would be to break down first what is happening in your brain with a hot flash, what research has shown with a hypothalamus and hot flashes. Could you break down and explain exactly what is happening in the brain when a woman has a hot flash? 
Well, I can't explain it exactly because it's not fully known, but I would say that 10 or 15 years ago, there was, whoa, estrogen goes away. There's this black box in the brain. We have no idea what the wiring is. And people get this, that we called, called it the thermoregulatory center in the brain. And we had a vague idea that it was located in the hypothalamus. So for those of you who haven't heard of the hypothalamus, because not many people have, it's sort of the waste, it's a way station in the midbrain and pretty much connects to everything else in the brain. So it was not particularly helpful to have that location of where it was. Um, until we came up with uh, the candy neurons. And by we, I'm talking about Naomi Rance, who was a neuropathologist in Arizona. She noted that in animals and in humans that had had their ovaries removed, this specific neuron in the brain, the candy neuron, it stands for kispeptin, neurokinin, and dynorphin. So kispeptin is one of the molecules that governs the reproductive system. Neurokinin is sort of a pro-inflammatory molecule. Uh, and there's many, there's a family of them. So that receptor was related to inflammatory processes and some connected to different nerves. And dynorphin governs the endogenous opioid system in the brain. So these are all sort of pretty basic functions. And again, in that midbrain that has many, many inputs and many outputs. But that finding led her to do some further experiments. And there were beginnings, some other research that was coalescing, saying these tachykinins, which also can interact with neurokinin receptors, were related in some women to a higher risk of hot flashes in epidemiologic studies. So the interest was accruing. She blocked that receptor with an antibody and found in animals that it seemed to eliminate hot flashes. You can't ask an experimental rodent if they're having hot flashes or not, but there are ways to be able to tell. And in one particularly clever experiment done by another scientist, uh, they created a tube where part of the tube was cold, part of the tube was warm, and the animals had their ovaries out. If you had blocked the neurokinin receptor, the animals who had their ovaries out were all over the tube. They didn't care where they went as long as that receptor was blocked. The animals that weren't blocked were all huddled at the colder end of the tube because they were having hot flashes. So it was a great way to tell that this was, this was the problem, this is where it worked. So it's thought that there's two places have those neurokinin receptors. One is in that area where the kispeptin neurons are, in the hypothalamus, and there's a second set of neurons, interneurons that interact with that that seem to also have this neurokinin receptor. So we know that those neurons go increase with menopause, they go up. If you block them, you're going to be able to block, you theoretically would be able to block hot flashes, and it looks like it's highly specific that it works as well as estrogen. And that's really what has doctors uh, and clinicians really excited about it because the only other FDA-approved medication for hot flashes is paroxetine mesylate. It's a long-acting salt of paroxetine, um, also commercially known as Paxil, but this compound is Brisdel. And it works, but it's not, it just barely edged out the placebo effect so it wasn't of that order of magnitude. And every other treatment we have that we use off-label works a little bit, but for most women, not nearly as well as estrogen. First off, the term non-hormonal is going to pique women's interest because of the fact that they are so afraid to take hormones. How do you get that to go into 
we were saying that it's phase three trials, but how do you even get it to a phase one trial? Well, phase one is where you, um, that's when you're looking mostly at, that. those are the very first experiments in humans for toxicity. So you give it to a very limited number of people in phase one, and you just make sure that it doesn't have any awful side effects. You go through a different doses, um, and you've already done all your animal research where you've shown that you know, what dose kills half of the animals. So you're kind of in the ballpark. You look at pregnancy outcomes in the animals. Um, and you, you look at the molecular structure and try to figure out, you know, is there going to be a problem with this? Does it have any particular configuration that it may be toxic to the kidney, to the liver, wherever? Where do we have to look? So uh, the many several compounds actually have gone through that. And there's many others right now that are also in testing. Fezolinotant is ahead of the others. It is now actually with the FDA pending approval. So we could hear any day now. Um, that it's approved. We could also hear that it's not approved, but I am a consultant for the company and uh, on their scientific advisory board. The data looks good that I know of, and I'm hoping that it will be approved. And we've just published a couple of new papers on it showing the safety and the effectiveness. You know, so many women, they are, like Colleen said, just they hear the word hormones and they, they go back to the 2002 study and they are terrified. I would love to really, you know, get, wrap my head around who is really at risk for her hormone replacement. Yeah, important question because there are some women that that should not take it. And most women are actually pretty low risk in the 50 to 60 age group, age range. But for some women who have had, for example, a blood clot, a venous thromboembolism, that would be a deep vein thrombosis in the calf or a lung pulmonary embolus, those women should not take estrogen. Um, it's generally recommended they don't. Women who cannot take estrogen at all are women with breast cancer. The mainstay of treatment for breast cancer is giving an aromatase inhibitor, which wipes out your estrogen levels. And any estrogen exposure is thought to help encourage the cancer to mutate and grow. Women with endometrial cancer, so there are some other rarer estrogen-dependent cancers where we don't want to give hormones. Those are the biggest contraindications by far. What about family history? Because we hear from a lot of listeners, oh, my mother had breast cancer, my aunt had breast cancer. I can't take it. What about people like that that have a family history of it? Yeah, and every it's not it's not in every case that you need to be afraid of hormones for that reason. So there's a few objective ways that women can estimate the breast cancer risk. Family history is one piece. The age at first birth is another major, major determinant of risk. And uh, depending on when the breast cancer occurred in that family member, that also influences the risk. So the age at which a woman got the cancer. So for example, your mother got cancer when she was in her 70s. That is much less of an impact on your risk of breast cancer than if your mother got it when she was in her 30s. So, uh, and how many family members have it uh, also makes a difference whether there's any genetic mutations associated with it because it might prompt genetic testing. And the amount of risk that hormones add to an already high breast cancer risk is not always as high as people think it is. So some women will still choose to take that risk because their, their hot flashes are so miserable. And so it is not an unreasonable thing. And I will usually work with my patients. We'll look at an objective breast cancer risk model 
um, because then we're just talking about a disease they do not have. Once they get a disease, that's a different story. And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. So in the FESO trials, the women were between 40 and 65, and they had at least seven, I think the average was seven hot flashes. Were there any um, side effects that were noted during the phase tri- during the trials? They, they had to have at least seven hot flashes a day and a mean of at least 50 a week because that's the FDA guidance for hot flash studies. So if you want to show that something's effective against hot flashes, you need to test it in sort of the biggest, baddest hot flashers. So these women are, are they're just on fire. And so Bridget would have been, I would have been a great candidate. (laughs) I would have been. Yes. Yeah. Because the trial was done during COVID, uh, we had a lot of COVID related side effects, headache, body aches, nausea, things like that. They seem to be distributed equally among the people taking placebo and FESO. So really no side effects. There was noted in the early studies with similar related compounds and also with FESO at higher doses that women reported back that they were sleeping better. So in some of the newer studies, sleep was incorporated and it does look like uh, we've presented that as an abstract uh, that there were some improvements in sleep and a, a paper is being prepared for publication on that. That'll be great news because we hear that from so many, so many women. That's another thing that comes along with menopause is the, the disturbance of sleep. Yeah, so that would be huge. And in one of the very early studies with a different compound, it looked like women were even losing weight with this type of compound. So I think I was high-fiving with one of my colleagues in the back of the room. It's like, it's the menopause poly pill. But, uh, you know, we need to see what happens when it gets out in clinical use and we're using it in, in all of our the patients we typically will treat, um, the women in the fezolinitan studies do look like they were pretty much representative. About 20% were African-American, about 20, 25% were Latina, and uh, about a quarter had hysterectomies. So that's pretty, and based on their um, BMI was around 28, which is about the average BMI for women in that age group. Uh, they seem pretty representative of American women. So that's good to see. Mm-hmm. What about women that are already on hormone replacement? Would it be okay if they switched, if they said, oh, this, if this becomes approved, do you know if it would be okay if they said, oh, I want to try this instead? Well, sure. I think it's a completely reasonable thing. We're giving hormones to alleviate symptoms. So when we have another treatment, and often when I have a patient who has been on hormones for long enough that we feel like she's kind of timed out and she's beginning to get risks that we don't want her to have, this may be something to switch switch her to. Once it's approved, and we're putting out in the universe that it will be approved, so we're not even saying if, when it's approved, how do How do doctors find out and prescribe the medication? Because it seems like the doctors are a little delayed on information on menopause. How do we make sure that not only our listeners can ask for it, but that it's an option that they're given? There's a number number of ways that that it gets delayed. So first of all, it gets approved, but then um, it has to be costed out. 
arrangements are made with insurance companies. Are you going to pay for this? If so, how much are you going to pay? What's the patient's copay going to be? And then it has it has to get on the formulary. So a hospital formulary committee, uh, like we have in our hospital in Colorado, or whatever uh, wherever it's going to be prescribed by the insurance companies, they have to put it on their formulary. And that can take months. So that can delay it further. Um, cost can be a big issue. Um, you know, I am a scientific advisor to Stellis, the company that's going to market it, but I do not have the capacity to advise them on cost. I have made my sentiments clear. I really hope this is going to be affordable for women. But we have noted in the menopause field that many menopause treatments are not picked up by pharmacies. Or if you, you are not the average patient and the simple stuff doesn't work for you and you need a slightly more complicated treatment, it's wildly expensive. So those things are pretty disappointing. And, you know, we just don't know yet where that's, how that's going to fall out. So that can take time. Um, sometimes there's, there's issues with physicians not learning about it. And that's part, that's part of that's on the burden on the company is to get the information out. And that's why they will bring uh, detail people to doctor's offices and practitioners to, to, you know, acquaint them with the compound and give them more information. But a lot of times those, that access has been restricted uh, because there's always worry about conflict of interest and giving physicians, uh, you know, two incentives to prescribe new, more expensive drugs. So those things can be barriers to getting the information out, but some of the reasons or the reasons behind it are good, but it may make it take longer. Are there any People, are there contraindications for the medication, women who should not be taking? There are no contraindications at present. That is great to know because that's just the, the most frightening thing for women. And, and another point that I want to make, too, that I've seen in some of your talks that I've looked uh, watched on YouTube or the Internet um, is that the treatment just of menopause that how it shouldn't be really, it's not really a disease, that it is a natural phase. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how that can be an issue? Sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of concern about the medicalization of menopause. And there's also, you know, th messages that I feel are anti-woman and anti-feminist. Uh, and it's highly gendered, like, oh, women and their hormones. You know, uh, I think Rebecca Thurston said it well in the Times article, we seem to be comfortable and more comfortable with women's suffering in our society than uh, we perhaps should be. And women don't always speak up and agitate and advocate for themselves as much as they could. So I do think that having advocacy in this area would really be helpful. Do you think that the FDA will make some type of decision soon or you just have no idea? <laughs> If I could predict the FDA's behavior, I would be at the racetrack right now betting because I would be <laughs> I was reading about the phase two trials were in 2015, 2016, and then phase three, if I'm understanding correctly, started in 2019. Is it normal to take this long or do you think the COVID might have delayed? I think that's actually pretty fast. This is okay. This is one of the encouragingly fast translations of the basic science into into something that's clinically useful. Our listeners are, the, are your patients, are the women that come in and say, I'm afraid to take hormonal medications, and I wish I knew that there were, tr there were medications that are going to be offered hopefully soon that can 
help my hot flashes. And I think just finding out more about the fact that it, the hypothalamus and, and the neurons, obviously we're lay people, so it sounds a little Latin to us, but more information we can give our listeners. Yeah, and we will learn a lot, you know, in post-marketing is sometimes where we learn a lot. And we do also learn about the weird and rare side effects that can happen. So as of now, I would say probably we're up to thousands of women that have been studied, but we're not up to tens of thousands. And that's when you can pick up anything that might be unusual or rare um, that may lead to further precautions or contraindications for the medication. But as of now, um, we have a good one year of safety on women, and it looks quite safe. The physicians and the, the researchers that are coming out with this stuff that is actually going to make such a difference in women's lives. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, you're very welcome. It's really fun to do because it does make a difference. And it does. It's absolutely fun. Well, we thought this was such a great conversation with Dr. Nanette Santora, and we hope that you learned something and learned about options out there for you if you are suffering from vasomotor symptoms, if you are suffering from menopausal symptoms, that this is just another option for you out there, that it is now FDA approved. You know, like we said before in our interview, uh, when this originally aired, it had not been FDA approved, but shortly after was. And we're really thrilled that they're out there for you. And we want to wish you all the very happiest of holidays. We hope you are enjoying time however you want to spend it. We hope that it is not hectic, that you are not stressed, that you get to enjoy time with the people that you love. Or if you get, if you just need a little time to yourself, we hope you have that too, because sometimes <laughs> we need that as well. Exactly. And right now, Vioza is on the market, but you know, some of it is pricey, you know, so talk to your doctor and see what options are out there. And we, like Bridget said, we just hope you have a great holiday, whether it's quiet or it's chaotic. Enjoy the moment. Be present. We wish you the best of holidays. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.